Welcome to What Christians Should Know, How You Can Apply Biblical Principles to Everyday Life. Hello everyone, welcome to What Christians Should Know, the podcast. I am your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafel. This is volume zero of the podcast, where we are searching for crucial answers to critical questions about belief. In this podcast, we'll be searching for a meaningful answer to the critical question, why do I need a savior? So let's get started. I live right outside of what is one of the most diverse cities in all of the United States, New York City. Contrary to what the rest of the country may think, New Yorkers are very friendly people. Yes, they are highly opinionated and pushy, but they are amicable nonetheless. Diversity in the city has installed within many New Yorkers a reasonable sense of tolerance, so that although neighbors may not look like me, speak my native language, eat what I eat, or think how I think, we can all reasonably get along in spite of our differences. For life in the big city, tolerance is reasonable, and whoever has the better preference ultimately is of no eternal significance. For life in the big pluralistic world that we live in, when it comes to religious beliefs, tolerance is still reasonable, but it bears tremendous eternal significance as it pertains to which religion has exclusive truth claims. Please note that being tolerant of something and believing that something to be true are two completely different things. In the United States, for example, the federal government is tolerant of all religions and therefore by law, all religions are guaranteed freedom of expression and equal treatment. The United States government makes no claim as to what religion is valid based on truth claims. Subsequently in America, people therefore have the legal right to believe in and practice a religion that is false. It is thus perfectly compatible to live in peace next to someone who subscribes to an ideology that you abhor because tolerance does not equal value. Accordingly, when it comes to responding to this episode's question, why do I need a savior, a central theme that animates a search for an answer is that the answer will be exclusive. In fact, for the answer to be true, it must be exclusive. Hence, the more appropriate way to phrase this episode's question is, why do I need the Savior? The Savior will exclude all other religious truth claims. Some may regard that as arrogant and elitist, to which I would say, that would only be true if I was claiming authority based on my own truth. Thankfully, the Savior is a truth that is separate from the self. This way, ideology can be challenged and not the people who hold them. The simple reality is that most religious truth claims are complete nonsense, but this does not mean all religious truth claims are complete nonsense. As a result, in this podcast, I will make the case for why you need the Savior, who is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. First, I will talk about the exclusivity of religious truth claims in general. Next, I will explore why a person needs to rely on a savior in the first place and discuss what being good means according to the Christian and secular worldviews. Then I will describe what role free will plays in our relationship with God. 
I will conclude and tie everything together by detailing why you need Jesus Christ, who is a legitimate, exclusive Savior for all of humanity, in spite of the fact that many will reject him. So as I mentioned, when it comes to religious beliefs in the United States, the current landscape is much like New York City, where pluralism reigns supreme. Using the common saying, we all worship the same God, and the common analogy, God sits on top of a mountain, and all religions are different roads to the top. When we consider these expressions, many are persuaded to believe that they can believe in whatever they would like, and we will all end up in the same place. This worldview is attractive because it is inclusive, and a savior is whoever you would like them to be. This savior makes no judgments, is very open-minded, and there is no need for anyone to squabble because we're all heading to the same place. Yet the problem is that even a cursory analysis of religion informs us that different systems of belief are not climbing up the same God and that we are on totally different mountains. Consider, for example, the person of Jesus. Orthodox Christianity has long worshipped him as God. This is a core truth claim that cannot be reduced to something insignificant and non-essential. But guess what? There are even some denominations who label themselves Christians who do not believe that Jesus is God. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses. Muslims do not think Jesus is God. They regard him as a prophet. Jews certainly do not believe Jesus is God, nor do they think that God is personable. Buddhists also deny that a personable God exists. The sharp distinctions and crucial beliefs cannot be denied, and it becomes clear that all religious beliefs cannot all be true because they say different things. So, as it applies to any other area in life, the truth by definition will be exclusive of non-truth. Of course, this is a reality that tends to be unpopular because exclusive truth is offensive. Still, a genuine interest in what is really true means being honest and upfront about the dissimilarities between religious truth claims, especially when those claims engage with ultimate topics like eternity, heaven, and hell. In the end, absolutely no absolutes cannot be true because that statement is itself an absolute statement. Now let's examine the exclusiveness and uniqueness of the Christian truth claim about Christ. There is only one person in all of history who ever claimed to be God, and that's Jesus. Jesus specifically said that I am the way, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also said that the way into heaven was not broad and inclusive. It was in fact very narrow and that many will enter through the broad gate which leads to destruction. The New Testament writers also testify to the fact that Jesus alone is the door that people can open in order to inherit eternal life. So, the one who is God, Jesus, claims to be God and makes the exclusive claim that he is the way to salvation. Many people will throw their hands up in the air at this point and say that such a claim is arrogant, offensive, and blatantly hostile to their sensibilities of how God should act. That is, God should not be such an elitist and open up more roads that lead to him. This logic is inherently flawed because if God's character must conform to man's image, then the very being of God is shattered into pieces. 
The brutal fact is that human beings are now faced with a dilemma that has intergalactic proportions. Either Jesus is telling us the truth, that he is God, and that there is only one way to him, or Jesus is telling us a dreadful lie. Even more, the question at hand is which path is the correct one to take. Truly, we could be in a scenario where there was no path at all. Consequently, when our eternal life is at stake, the much more reasonable question to ask is if God has thoroughly revealed himself to us and made an explicit case for why he is the Savior. Thankfully, what we do have is the Bible, a legitimate historical book that proclaims a unified and coherent message that testifies to the person and character of the Messiah, Jesus. The Bible is a historical collection of objective evidence so that in spite of all the zealous feelings in the world and all the skepticism in the world, neither alters its truth claims. And what does the Bible say about Jesus that makes him so special? Well, the Bible makes the explicit case that Jesus is God in the flesh or God incarnate, and he acted like God by doing what only God could do, that is, supernatural miracles. This means Jesus is deserving of glory and stands far above everyone else. Buddha, for example, never claimed to be anything more than a man, as did the prophet Muhammad. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, never claimed to be anything more than a prophet. The Bible also makes the explicit case that Jesus is sinless, which means he is more than just good, but is holy. This means that Jesus not only never did anything wrong, but he also never had any sinful thoughts. In fact, the basic trait that characterizes God is his holiness, and being sound asleep in the bright of day is analogous to lacking an understanding of the holiness of God. Holiness demands justice, and holiness can never say never mind to sin. The greatest enemy to evil is the holiness of God, and the holiness of God is what sends most people running as far as they can from the Lord. The Bible makes the explicit case that Jesus died on the cross as an atonement for sin. Sin, or violation of God's law, equates to cosmic treason in the sight of a holy God. This is why sin is such a big deal and had to be dealt with before we can have relationship with the Lord. Because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life, he acted as a sacrificial substitute to pay the legal price for sin in place of us. No other religious figure makes a case for atonement. The Bible also makes the clear case that Jesus rose from the dead. So, in contrast to Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard, or any other leader of religion, Jesus is the only one to have died and then come back to tell others about it. In fact, because Christ conquered death, the Bible makes the explicit case that those who profess faith in Jesus will not die, but will live eternally. Jesus Christ is the one who makes the Christian faith unique and drastically different from the rest of the religious pack. Furthermore, the exclusivity of Jesus as the Savior is a claim predicated on his deity, sinlessness, his atonement, and his resurrection. The huge book, that is the Bible, spans an excess of 1,000 pages and moves through thousands of years of history to show all of humanity exactly what God has done to reveal himself to us. 
the Bible and the exclusivity of Christ certainly can be ignored, but a person must embrace the fact that to reject Christ means rejecting everything he has done to reveal himself. The world is incessantly focused on having their preferred option, yet they fail to realize that, as far as what the Bible reveals to us, the fact that there is a path to salvation is an unmerited gift from God. Indeed, it would be truly arrogant if a religious zealot ever said their way was the right way based on what they believe. In this paradigm, they derive authority from themselves, which is demeaning of others. It isn't demeaning at all if someone says, this way is the right way, and that proclamation is based on truth. I remember not too long ago that my father sustained a heart attack. When the doctors took a close look at the heart, they found blockages of all four major blood vessels. The cardiothoracic surgeon then came in and said, Mr. Sadafel, the only way I can save you from certain death is if you have cardiac bypass surgery. The surgeon did not make this recommendation based on his personal opinion or inward feelings. He based it on objective evidence after looking at my father's heart, relying on his extensive medical training, and having an awareness of patient outcomes after bypass surgery. My father could have thought to himself, this bypass surgery option sounds too restrictive. I need more options. I want to go away that I want. He could have thought that coming from the mind of a non-heart surgeon. He could have thought that realizing that his freedom of choice now would lead to death later. Thankfully, he never thought those things because he realized it is far more advantageous to relinquish personal preference for a trustworthy, reliable option, especially when that option holds supreme power over life and death. So the bad news for many in modernity is that all religions are drastically different, so making the wrong choice can get you into worlds of trouble. The good news has two parts. The first is that there is a way to paradise. The second is that the Savior, Jesus, is a trustworthy and reliable option who backed up his promises for new life by the resurrection. Searching for a savior assumes you need one. After all, why can't a person just live a good life and be done with it? A person could say, so what about religion, a savior, and the Bible? My life is going pretty well. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I think I'm generally okay. Why can't I just be good and leave it at that? Answering this question will expose a basic rift between the Christian and secular worldviews. A person needs a savior and they cannot just be good because the God of the Bible isn't just good. He's holy. Holiness is something separate and distinct from good. Good is the beggar that sits weak and emaciated at the bottom of the mountain and God, in his holiness, sits on top of the mountain which is thousands of miles high. Good is a social label that is applied based on external observations, but can never assess internal heart condition. A man could be labeled good because he takes care of his children, is always supportive of his wife, and generally speaking is kind to others, but this label would ignore his private sex addiction characterized by a relentless compulsion to masturbate to pornography. 
A woman could be labeled good because she is a diligent student, smart with her money, and donates her time to charity, but this label would ignore her private malice in her heart for people who don't look like her and speak a different language. A famous celebrity could be labeled good because she is an industrious humanitarian who seemingly gives endlessly of herself to help those without, but this label would ignore her private love of recognition that feeds off selfish desires for pristine public image. A god who is just good may give us nice weather from time to time, but would never allow himself to endure suffering on the cross for the sake of humanity. The cross is what happens when a holy God, who loves his creation but cannot deny his justice, allows himself to be sacrificed for the sake of humanity. Granted, striving to be good isn't the issue per se that keeps the beggar in a state of poverty at the bottom of the mountain of holiness. It's the sin that invariably accompanies a person who is basically good, as our prior examples testify to. Bringing one drop of sin in the presence of a holy God is cosmic treason, and he will not tolerate such an offense. Would you want a serial murderer to live next to you? How about a child molester? Of course you wouldn't. Why? Because their sin is offensive, and those criminals did not even commit a crime against you. A holy God will not tolerate sin, which is a galactic offense directly against him. A secular humanist and a Christian can both comfortably agree that people are not perfect. Beyond that fact, however, there is a huge discrepancy in worldviews. The Christian says that people are innately corrupt and are thus incapable of having a moral disposition inclined toward good. The secular humanist would say that yes, People do bad things, but on the inside, they are essentially good people. The existential problem with the secular position becomes evident very quickly. That is, who defines what is good? What is the barometer that people can use to objectively define the threshold above which is good and below which is bad? Because as it has already been established, people are not perfect. So how can a person or a group of non-perfect people objectively define what is good or come to a social consensus on what is respectable. Even more, to live in a world where the average Joe Schmo is good by necessity means that the standard of good has to be low enough to include most people. This may make people feel better, but devalues good. So, for the secular humanist, either good applies to most people and good therefore means very little, or good has a high bar and therefore actually means something, but now the secularist is labeled an arrogant elitist. While a secular worldview permits for a malleable standard of what is good, the Christian worldview does not, as informed in the Bible. The Christian wholly rejects the idea that a standard for what is good can be voted on, agreed on by popular consensus, or codified into law. The Christian worldview upholds the idea that what is good is permanent, unchanging, and defined by God himself. So, for example, when God says, Thou shall not steal, in Exodus 20.15, that objectively means, Thou shalt not steal, because theft is objectively wrong. It doesn't matter if you are stealing from the rich to give to the poor, or if a group of people come to a consensus to forcibly take something that is not theirs away from someone else. 
Theft is theft, and theft is wrong. This ultimate standard calls on all Christians to be something far greater than good, and that is to be holy. Of course, real life shatters the illusion of Christians being holy, and I would be lying if I did not say that on countless occasions, my behavior has been quite unholy. Still, this does not change the divine mandate of awesome moral responsibility before God. Jesus himself shatters the modern sensibility about what good really is. In Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 34, Christ has a discussion with a rich young ruler. The man seeks to know how a person can obtain eternal life, and Jesus is explicit when he responds by saying, No one is good except God alone. I will paraphrase, but then Jesus continues by saying, You already know what God requires of you. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, and honor your parents. The man responds by saying, Since I was a child, I have done all those things. Now let's take a step back. Here you have a man talking to God himself, and the man is justifying himself before God. He's saying, God, I know your laws and your rules, and I have kept all of them since I was young. Indeed, I guess I am good by my own merit, and I guess I am worthy. This man makes the mistake that many in modernity do. That is, they underestimate how incomprehensibly difficult it is to obey God's law. In fact, you don't need to have a degree in theology or be a Bible expert to know just how tough God's demands are. According to Jesus, the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This radical command is inclusive of every fiber of a person's being and is so demanding that the great Bible teacher R.C. Sproul once wrote that, quote, I know I haven't loved God with my whole heart for 60 seconds in my life, end quote. The second greatest command is to love your neighbor as thyself. I must woefully admit that I haven't loved my neighbor as myself for 10 seconds of my life. These commands, which are two of hundreds, encompass the whole of a person's being and command us to override what most people do naturally to love themselves. If people would rather not bother with God, then how can they possibly love Him with all of their heart? Furthermore, people may embrace the fact that Christ was an all-around nice guy God who is much more palatable than the presupposed all-around mean guy God of the Old Testament with all of His wrath and fire and brimstone. However, in many regards, people fail to embrace how Jesus made the demands of the Old Testament law harder. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that in the Old Testament, for example, there was an explicit command not to commit adultery. The penalty for this sin was death. Then, in the New Testament, Jesus explains that if a man even thinks of adultery with lust, then he has already committed adultery in his heart. In other words, the stakes for being good were raised astronomically from just doing what is right to thinking what is right. It's no wonder that the two greatest commandments focused on heart condition, to love God and to love one's neighbor. Can you even imagine a society in which thought crimes existed? In such a world, everyone would be a felon and no one would be good. 
Many people may have a representation of Jesus in their mind, a figure who is all-inclusive and loving and who is all about forgiveness and mercy. What the Bible teaches plainly is that God is radically inclusive of people, but has always been radically exclusive to sin. What the Bible teaches plainly is that God is merciful and abounding in loving kindness, but that loving kindness is demonstrated to those people who fear Him and keep His commandments. Certainly, God is not a cosmic bellhop that beckons whenever a person calls. Truly, as it says in Galatians 6-7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So when we turn back to the rich young ruler in Luke 18, it becomes clear that this man never enriched himself in the full counsel of Christ's teachings. If he did, he would have realized that being good meant more than staying away from the gross, outward violations of God's law. The ruler was unaware of the true demands of God's law and thus lowered the bar of good to fit his unique situation. So if we go back to Luke 18, this clarifies what happens in the conversation that follows after the ruler tells Christ that he has followed all the rules since he was young. Jesus then says, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 23 then tells us the ruler's response. The text says, But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Why was the ruler sad? Because he had violated the greatest commandment of all, to love God. People protect what they love, and the ruler was protecting his wealth. He wanted his riches more than he wanted God, which also means he was guilty of covetousness, a violation of the Tenth Commandment. The rich young ruler, like many in modernity, wanted eternity and to be in heaven. Yet he didn't want the God that holds eternity in his hands. The brutal fact is that if you don't want God in the present, then you will get exactly what you want and spend eternity without him in hell. So the bad news is that a person cannot just be good. The good news is that Jesus was more than good. He is holy and lived a life of perfect obedience. The Bible teaches us that we ought never to rely on ourselves being good, but we must have faith in the one who is eternally holy, Jesus. How can a Christian reconcile science with what the Bible says? Where can they go to find intelligent, reasonable answers to some basic scientific questions about our world and life? The answer is Truthfinder. Find Truthfinder on iTunes by searching for the title or following the links on WCSK.org. Central to the Christian worldview is the idea that people are inherently corrupt. What does this mean? After all, if people are inherently corrupt, how can they be held responsible for doing what their nature commands? This is a very keen observation that deserves a meaningful answer. 
When Bible teachers refer to humankind as being corrupt or fallen, it means that while we maintain the ability to choose between right and wrong, we have a moral disposition to do what is bad. Jonathan Edwards refer to humankind's natural ability and their moral ability. So all humans have a potential to choose what is good because we have a mind and intellect and are able to make an unforced selection between alternatives. Yet this potential is not actualized. Why? Because humankind lacks the moral ability. In fact, we possess a moral inability or a desire toward evil. Embracing this fact requires a person to simply think about people honestly. For example, children engage in mischief naturally and have to be corrected and taught obedience. Atheists and agnostics prove the moral inability of humankind perfectly. Why is that? Because they have no desire to please God and may even say that doing religion requires too much effort. They may have even read the Bible dozens of times and know exactly what God requires, thus defining the contours of their potential natural ability, but are totally devoid of any moral inclination to do what God says. Ultimately then, every human being is quote-unquote free to choose what they want to do in the absence of coercion, and the reason people choose one alternative over the other is because that's what they truly want to do. For whatever reason, they have the strongest inclination for A rather than B. The difference, however, between secular culture and the Christian worldview is how a person is free to choose A over B. The secularist tends to think that free will truly is autonomy to choose between right and wrong without any prior inclination. Here, a person is still wholly responsible for their actions. On the other hand, the Christian worldview still maintains that a person is free to choose between alternatives, but they are not autonomous. That is, they have an inclination to do what is evil. As Martin Luther claimed in Bondage of the Will, people are thus free to choose, but are not at liberty. It must be emphasized that the Christian worldview never denies that human beings are responsible for the choices that they make, because ultimately, that is what they truly want to do. The determining factor in all moral decisions is the self, and it is only by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit that a person may be born again and thus have their self or their inclinations operatively changed to now do what God wants and therefore not to sin. What thus becomes clear is that in contrast to a secular worldview, for the Christian, freedom does not equal autonomy. Furthermore, if the exercise of one's freedom keeps you in bondage to sin, then it is not a freedom worth having. Part of the reason, then, as to why you need a Savior is to put to death the old self that desires and longs to sin, so that you may be raised to new life and long to do the will of God. So, the bad news is that although a person is free, this does not mean that they are at liberty to do what is right. 
the good news is that Jesus already paid our ransom in full to redeem us from the bondage of our will and set us free to live a new life as new creatures in him. A pervasive sense of right and wrong exists, not only in the present, but has accompanied the entire history of humanity. As discussed, people are inherently incapable of doing what is right and have a disposition to sin even though they have the freedom to choose. What should be made clear is that no one is subjectively defining sin into existence, accusing everyone of sin, and then manufacturing a global need for a savior. When it comes to moral law, what is right and wrong are not explanations of the natural world and the way things are, like gravity explains how fast an object falls from the sky. Rather, moral law prescribes how things should be or an oughtness. As Norman Geisler writes in When Skeptics Ask, quote, Moral laws are not simply description of the way people behave and are not known by observing what people do. If they were, our idea of morality would surely be different. Instead, they tell us what people ought to do, whether they are doing it or not. Thus, any moral ought comes from beyond the natural universe. You can't explain it by anything that happens in the universe, and it can't be reduced to things people do in the universe. It transcends the natural order and requires a transcendent cause. End quote. So sin, or that which is wrong, is the violation of God's law, either in action or thought. In the 21st century, no one likes to be called a sinner because it produces feelings of guilt and unworthiness. But when we take a closer look at the objective moral law, we quickly discover that God has specified the contours of the moral law in the Bible. So when God tells us, thou shall, and thou shalt not, he is making it explicitly clear what is good and what is bad. So as Romans 3.23 says, All of humanity has fallen short of God's benchmark, so we are all sinners. Now is this an exercise in self-pity? Of course not, but it's meant to reveal to us how God's law convicts us of our sin. So if hell ever did have a best-kept secret, it is just that— it is God's law. Why is that? Because God's law makes a person realize that they have sinned and therefore they are a sinner. The penalty for sin is death. So the only way a sinner can be rescued from death is if they have a savior that has paid the price for sin. There is only one person who fits such a description and that is Jesus Christ. In a world that is soft on sin, that dismisses God's law as outdated or irrelevant or upholds subjective morality, sin is not such a big deal. When sin is not a big deal, then neither is salvation. And if salvation is not a big deal, then you have no need for Jesus. This is the great trick the deceiver has played on humanity since the Garden of Eden. He has tried to make humanity forget about God's law by reframing sin, which again amounts to cosmic treason against a holy God, and reframing it as treason against a person's own self-determination. 
So a person is offered autonomy and freedom in the present while sacrificing eternity. Ultimately, while hell's best kept secret is God's law, heaven's solution for salvation is in plain sight, and his name is Jesus. In other religions, God is God and man is man. There is no communication or personal relationship. So the only way God and man can meet is in a God-man, the exact person that Jesus is, God in the flesh. If religion plays out any other way, an unlimited gap separates the infinite and the finite. So Jesus is the Savior, but what does Jesus save us from? After all, by definition, a Savior is a person who saves someone else from danger. What danger are we being rescued from? Ultimately, this danger is not the devil. It is not hell. It is not even sin or death. These are all peripheral to the real danger, who is God himself. When we are saved by the Savior, we are saved from God's wrath. He is the one who is sovereign, and nothing else tells God what to do. In the time of judgment, the devil does not judge you and deliver a sentence as a righteous judge. God does that. Hell is only dangerous if God sends you there for eternity. Sin is only dangerous because it is an offense against a holy God whose justice demands a penalty for sin. Death is only bad news if you have not professed faith in God. Jesus, the Savior, saves us from God's wrath in the judgment to come. And Jesus being God makes perfect sense because only God can turn away the wrath of God. There are still some people who, no matter how hard you witness, evangelize, or show the love of Christ to, they will reject the Savior. They'll say, I don't want Jesus. In this scenario, the person is fully aware about Jesus and what the Bible says, but they will purposely reject the truth. This is unfortunate, yet in the end, all those who don't hear will feel. There are some that will say, I don't need Jesus. In this scenario, the person clearly hasn't grasped the pressing reality that everyone needs Jesus, the Savior, because we don't stand a chance being judged by a holy God. God's holiness demands justice, and there are only two ways that his justice can be satisfied. God satisfies his own justice through Jesus, or you satisfy God's justice in hell forever. All those who don't hear will feel. So what have we learned? We learn that you need a savior because without one, your eternal prospects are abysmal. The good news is that you don't have to choose amongst options because there is only one exclusive mediator between God and humankind, Jesus. He demonstrated that the only thing we have to do is have faith in him, the one who is good, who perfectly obeyed God's law for his entire life and paid the eternal penalty for sin on the cross. He was good for our sakes and is the one who set us free from our own carnal inclinations that lust after evil. To borrow an analogy from Ray Comfort, humanity needs a savior because our world is like a plane that is rapidly descending and will soon crash. 
We need not worry about snack service, what movie is playing, or if we have a window seat. This is what the world worries about because they are distracted and fail to embrace the dire menace of the impending crash. Those who are acutely aware of the perilous predicament realize they cannot save themselves, nor do they have any power to change what will be. So when they hear about a parachute, the savior, which is the only thing that can rescue them from certain death, they realize that this is the best news they have ever heard. They realize everything else going on in the plane is irrelevant, and when they grab hold of the parachute, they cling on tight and never let go. They begin to look around and fervently implore others to strap on a parachute, but the others don't seem to care. Some believe the plane isn't crashing, some are obsessed with changing their seat to first class, and some simply want to get drunk with little plastic bottles of liquor. You implore and plead with others who call you names and regard you as a nutcase or idiotic because you're more concerned about what happens afterwards as opposed to what's happening now. You plead and plead, and thankfully some do listen because they understand what is at stake. Those who do hear and are convicted of the grave danger they are in are zealous for their parachute. Those who don't perceive the grave danger they are in are either apathetic or lukewarm. Ultimately, you are at peace in spite of the predicament on the plane because you know that you will never be able to withstand the wrath of God, but you have an advocate who will come to your defense, Jesus. You realize you need the Savior because you are a sinner who is lost, and that is exactly why Jesus came into this world, for sinners and to seek and save those who are lost. Without Christ, you may be able to get by in the present, but you are assured to lose eternity. Truly, eternity matters more than the present, and right now counts toward eternity. That'll be all for this episode. God bless and see everyone next time. Thank you for listening. For more valuable content, including written transcripts, a bookstore, and online Bible study, please visit wcsk.org.